welcome to the Nail Your Nutrition podcast, a podcast focused on nutrition, fueling, intuitive eating, and training for endurance activity. Each week, we put out evidence-based information to help you learn to fuel adequately to ace your training and achieve PRs. You'll hear interviews with sports nutrition experts, new and seasoned athletes, and athletes looking to balance ambitions of fitness and training with family and professional goals. I'm Sarah Schlichter, a sports dietitian and mom to two girls. I'm a huge believer in merging the principles of sports nutrition and intuitive eating. Life's too short to not enjoy your food. You can learn more about my work at bucketlisttummy.com. And I'm Marita, a sports dietitian and mom to two boys in San Antonio, Texas. I work with endurance athletes at my private practice, Eat to Compete. My goal is to help runners and triathletes learn to fuel their training with intuitive eating, heal disordered eating, and become a happier and more resilient athlete. We are two sports dietitians and moms here to break down the nutrition science to make training more fun and approachable for you. Whether you're a novice athlete, a weekend warrior, a mom trying to fit in a consistent exercise schedule, or a top finisher at big races, we want to help you understand the importance of fueling well. We're so glad you're here and would appreciate you sharing this episode with someone you think would enjoy it, like your favorite running buddy or a coworker who trains too. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Today we have Elizabeth Scott on the podcast. You may know her from the podcast Running Explained, and you'll probably appreciate her soothing voice throughout this conversation just as I did. Elizabeth Scott is the founder and head coach at Running Explained. She is on a mission to help runners of all abilities and experience levels become better, smarter, faster runners. You can find her at runningexplained.co, on Instagram at Running Explained, and every week on new episodes of her podcast. I think you'll really enjoy everything we talk about today, logistics for training, amping up your training, rest days, tapering, speed workouts, and more. So you might want to listen to this twice if you're listening on your run, get a pen and paper out, take some notes. And as always, we welcome your feedback. Let's get to the conversation. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Nail Your Nutrition podcast. Today, we have Elizabeth Scott here to tell us all about logistics of training for half and full marathons. It's going to be a really jam-packed episode, so I'll let her go ahead and introduce herself. Hi, everyone. My name is Elizabeth Scott. I am the face and the voice behind Running Explained and the Running Explained podcast. I am a running coach. I have a couple certifications, but as any coach will tell you, those certifications are just the tip of the iceberg. I've been coaching for about three years now, and I mostly work with adult endurance athletes. And that really, in my world, just means anybody training for a 5K and above. Um, And so I do work mostly with people who are aiming to run 10K, half, full marathon, ultra marathon, but I really do love working with runners of all abilities and experience levels and, and just helping people understand the why, the science, and the holistic nature of running uh, so they can become better runners. Love that. And how did you get into running? Did you start at a young age or are you like most of us who got into it later in life? Yeah. So I grew up, I grew up playing sports and I never ran. And actually I had some like real, real bad experiences with running um, in middle school. I remember, um, so my mom died when I was in middle school and I missed a lot of school because like you do, right? And I missed the presidential fitness test, of course, and public school, like they have to make you do it. So I remember they made me make up my mile thing in, uh, I didn't have gym clothes. I had to wear street clothes. Like I remember running it in like corduroys. This is a very vivid memory. I know exactly what I was wearing. I was wearing corduroy pants, trying to run a gym class mile by myself on the track as like a young adolescent. And in that moment, I realized that I hated running so much. (laughs) Um, I grew up playing, I I grew up skiing, I grew up swimming. um, And I only ran when I played, you know, JV contact sports, you know, uh, lacrosse and and soccer. But I didn't start running until I was 29. Um, And I ran because I'd recently quit drinking and I wanted to lose weight. Like my very, my clear stated purpose for starting to run was I wanted to lose weight I so quickly fell in love with the sport. Um, I, within the first six months of running, 
First huge mistake, I had conquered all four major distances. I'd run a 10K, a 5K, 10K, half and full marathon, which I would never, ever, ever let anybody else do or recommend. But that really lit a fire under me and realized that this sport was something that I absolutely fell in love with because of the, the way that it really forces introspection and a connection with yourself and allows you to push yourself to do things that you never thought you could do. Agree. I get so many life lessons out of running and my running right now is is a little lackluster being 27 weeks pregnant and having small children. It's it's not the same. I look forward to getting back to it. But after a run, I feel so empowered to just like take on business opportunities or take on the day or feel confident. So I really do feel like it just kind of bubbles over into life. Yeah, it does. And unfortunately, some of our best ideas occur on the run. And then, of course, due to running brain, as soon as we get home, they're just totally gone. But is that a scientific phenomenon? <laughs> I there's something. Well, there, running, it can't be very meditative, right? So you have these thoughts and it does, you know, they can come and go and it unlocks different ways of thinking. And unfortunately, I don't think anybody's figured out short of like taking notes while you run how to make those ideas stick sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. So many good ideas on the run. So Let's talk talk about your personal running. So are you currently training for anything? What does that look like? I am. I'm currently training for the Chicago Marathon uh, this fall. This will be my first marathon major. The marathons I've run so far have been not necessarily small races, but they have been not marathon majors. Um, But I understand the complexity of training for a race that involves a lot of logistical challenges uh, because... You know, you know, the logistical challenge of training for a marathon is one thing. And then getting to the start line, often in a new city, you're waking up really, really early. You have lots of hours between when you wake up and when you start running. And then you have to go and, and propel yourself forward for hours and hours and hours um, during in the middle of the day. Yeah, there's a lot involved here. So um, uh, so all of this will be my first marathon major. I've had many of my clients run marathon majors previously, and I've also previously run the Walt Disney World Marathon and the Las Vegas Marathon, which both have their own logistical complexities. So I am a huge proponent of planning, planning, planning for your race day for a really good reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're going to get to some of those tips that you have. Out of curiosity, do you have a running coach that builds your plan or is that something you do for yourself? I used to coach myself and it's a, it's a different thing when you know what you're doing. It's still so hard to be objective about your own training. Um, it's like why doctors don't treat themselves, right? Or they shouldn't. I do have a coach. Uh, my coach is Laura Norris. She's phenomenal. She's fantastic. She also has an extremely science-based outlook onto training. And, you know, there's no... I think there's this perception that in order to have a coach, like that coaches don't need coaches or you have to be really competitive or have a very specific kind of goal to work with a coach. And that's just simply not true. Um, Most of the clients I personally work with have goals that are just like run their first race of X distance or maybe just learn to run consistently without burning out. Cause every time they try to do it on their own, they always end up injured or like don't run for six months. Cause they just totally went too hard and, and can't, can't sustain that. So yes, I absolutely have a coach. I highly recommend it. Even if you know what you're doing, it's so much nicer to have somebody with objective skills come in and review and adjust your training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We love Laura. She's been on the podcast twice, I believe. And it's almost like from an nutrition perspective, working with another dietitian, I feel like it might sound like you don't need to do that. You know everything. But in nutrition, there's so many different niches. And if maybe you don't specialize in IBS or sports nutrition or something like that, it could be helpful to have another dietitian objectively look through your diet, give you tips. Um, so I kind of see it the same way for that as well. Also, one of the things I know we're talking about today is just you know effective training for runners. And most runners, I would say, I don't, know, I don't want to broadly sweep, I'm going to go ahead and say that almost every single runner out there um, tends to gravitate towards doing things that are slightly too hard or too challenging. And sometimes on the extreme end of like, you're doing way too much. And that's no different, I think, for, you know, even for me. And because we want to be the best we can be, right? And so sometimes we do have these, I want to say excuses, but like justifications for like, no, no, no. I mean, I know that technically this was a little bit, but I'll do it anyways, because I want to get my race day goal and to have some, a coach come in and say, let's just little, let's turn it down half a notch and we're good. That's all you need to do. So that's, that's just really nice not to feel like, you know, I'm not ever doing enough. 
my coach tells me I am, so I'm happy. Right. It's that permission that you almost need. And that actually brings me to a question I have as we talk today about half and full marathon cycle trainings and, and whether you're a new runner or a seasoned runner, how, what, how important is a base, like having base training before you go into that? What do you usually recommend to your runners? Your base is everything. If you're an endurance runner, your base is your best friend. You cannot do what you want to do without a base. Base simply means um, your base ability to run X volume, your base ability or efficiency at endurance running, right? So a brand new runner has no base, right? They, they are kind of, you know, every time they go out, maybe they're running two, three miles at a time, like their base is, is relatively low. You have to remember that your base is cumulative, just like the rest of your training. So if you have been running for 15 years, you have an innately stronger base than somebody who's been running for six months. Um, I like to tell my runners, like, especially for, for training for half full and ultra marathons, your training might, your race specific training might basically be base building with the goal of building to a specific volume. Um, base building and base training can also be a separate pre-race training block, especially if we are trying to increase our efficiency or volume with the goal of then launching into a more challenging training block that may contain things like increased intensity and really specific workouts. But for a brand new runner to a distance, like the first time I'm building to a half marathon, the first time I'm building to a marathon, their race-specific training might be base building just towards that one very specific race distance. So I'm a, I, I'm, I'm all for it. And if nothing else, like it doesn't matter how much speed work you do. If you don't have a base to support it, you're just like icing a cupcake and it's going to fall over. Mm-hmm. Right. So it sounds like a big mistake some runners make kind of with that running mentality is do too much too quickly. Um, try to get out the door, increase intensity, maybe distance too quickly. What other mistakes do you see runners make when they're Maybe trying. Yeah. I mean, those are the huge ones. Those are the really big ones. And I, you know, you can't rush your body's process. Like I'm, you just can't rush how strong, how long it takes your bones to get stronger. You can't, you cannot rush how long it takes you to create more mitochondria in your muscle fibers. You cannot rush those things. It happens on the time that it happens on. And people don't like to hear that, no, you probably do need to base build for three or four months before you even start your marathon training because you're only running 10 miles a week, right? If you, if you, might you be able to complete 26.2 miles without base building and doing proper training? Maybe, but there's gonna be a lot of walking involved and you're, you're going to be miserable. You're probably going to be in some serious discomfort by the end, right? So we don't race Hopefully, just to say that we did it, we race so that we can do it and say that we did it the best of our ability. So, you know, when we're talking about these long distance goals, we really have to take a long term view of what it's going to take to achieve doing that properly. Right. And it sounds like having that base is a big marker of increasing endurance. Is that something that you would say is true? Yeah. And this is really one of those huge, it depends. And obviously you hear any, any coach and most professionals, PTs, dietitians say this, like, well, it depends, right? Because it does depend on the person. Um, You know, somebody's, it depends on what their natural ability is, how much they have time to do, what their goals are, how long they've been running, all these types of things. Some people have a genuine weekly mileage base, which is the weekly mileage that they are currently comfortable running, like without issue, like I can kind of run this mileage week over week over week. And like, I'm totally good here. Um, in the thirties, forties, fifties or sixties, right. If you're a competitive runner, you know, a lot of people are going to be more in that. I would say mid teens to like up to 30 miles per week range is where I see most recreational runners. And that's a great place to be. Um, but you have to understand that, you know, training for a marathon with a base of 15 miles per week, it's going to be much different experience training for a marathon in a base of like 25 to 30 miles per week. So, you know, you might think not think that makes that much of a difference, but it really can, it really can, because when we're talking about the number one important thing of endurance, anything is the endurance aspect, right? And you, there's really, you can't really shortcut the volume and the time required to build that skill. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I always tell people, especially ones who think more is better, like you have to do 70, 80 miles a week when you're training. My best marathon when I qualified for Boston, I think I ran 40, maybe topped at 50. But that was that worked for my body. I couldn't handle more. I did some cross training, but the idea of running more, I think, would have burnt me out or led to injury. And that was my personal you know, threshold that I figured out. Another thing to keep in mind too, is that, you know, we, we often runners, we can easily quantify volume. Oh, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 miles a week, right? We look at an elite runner or even just a competitive runner and say, well, that person's running 80 miles a week or that person's running a hundred miles a week. And that's, what's going to take for me to get to, oh my God, how do they have that much time in the week? You have to remember and I, as we, you know, as we know, some people are faster than other people. And if you have somebody who is example of, you know, can run an Olympic trials qualifying marathon time for a woman, which is now it's 237, you know, that person is going to spend not that much more time actually training, even though they're running more volume than somebody who is running slower than that. And so, you know, often, like you said, we think we need to run this monster mileage when it would be beyond inappropriate and dangerous for somebody who would be running, let's say targeting a five hour marathon to run 60 miles a week, 70 miles a week. Cause they would be spending like triathlon quantities of time training. They'd be running for 20 hours a week, you know, to get that kind of volume in. And that's just way too much time on feet for almost anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a really good point. Just reminding ourselves that miles does not equal time and that time is going to be so variable, which speaking of, I mean, training for a half training for a full that takes a lot of time. So not only the time on your feet and mileage, but what other things go into a marathon training cycle? I mean, should we be cross training? Should we be doing speed work? What does that look like? Yes, this is a really great question. Um, I would say for people who are time limited and want a good return on their training investment, half marathons are awesome. You can run a really great half marathon. You can have a really solid half marathon training cycle on considerably less volume than it would take to even just train to finish a marathon. So we might, you know, you might think, well, 10K versus half marathon, you know, what's, I can run a 10K and then I ran a half marathon. There is something, I want to say magical, but extraordinarily challenging about going to 26 miles. Um, so the time investment involved for that kind of training, it's like you said, it's not just the time, uh, you know, running, it's the warm up, the cool down, the strength training, the mobility, the core, you have to spend a lot of time paying attention to eating enough, eating properly, fueling pre-run, fueling post-run. You have to make sure you're getting enough sleep to support your training, right? So not only are you running more, but now you have to sleep more. Like, where do you spend the rest of your hours in the day? What about your kids and your job? Um, and so, you know, in terms of, the, like I said, the time investment, if you can run a great, 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 great half marathon on um, considerably less volume and time investment than it would take to, you know, even just to run, to run a marathon. Um the inclusion of other things in your training specifically, obviously the base, the foundation of your training for any distance, any endurance race, any distance event is going to be subaerobic threshold running, colloquial known, colloquially known as easy effort running or zone two training. Um, this is this is the majority of your training. Like I said, if you are building up to a volume for the first time, it might be almost all of your training. I often get questions about like, what's the right kind of speed work for my first marathon for your first marathon. The right kind of speed work is no speed work because your, your goal is volume. Your goal is distance, not speed. And when you are building up your capacity to run for 26 miles, hopefully without stopping or doing a run walk strategy, speed work really has no place there. Now, of course, as you become more advanced and more comfortable, in your training and in progressing in your goals. Of course, workouts are going to become more important. But even then, we're looking at things like lactate threshold work and marathon goal pace work. We're not necessarily, you know, ripping 400s of the track all the time. So, you know, for each each runner, where they currently are in their goals and what kind of things they've done previously are always going to inform the kind of training that they're supposed to be doing in this training cycle. Just a quick break to share this week's sponsor with you. This week's sponsor is Nature Nate's Honey. Honey isn't just honey. There's an art to making great honey, and it starts with a passion to do things right. 
That's how they do it at Nature Nate. They do it right, making sure every bottle is as pure and simple as it is straight from the hive. Look for Nate's bright orange honey bottle the next time you shop for groceries, or try their single serving packets for fueling during your run, like we talk about often on this podcast. Yeah, and as you talk about it, you can see how in-depth and specific it really does get based on each runner, their history, their goals, and all of that. So totally worth it to have a running coach alongside you to analyze all of that and help you plan to avoid injury, to avoid burnout, to to make sure you do have that base and that speed training. Now, I heard you mention easy runs, and I even, you know, I'm guilty of it early in my running career. You don't take runs easy. Like, I'm just going to go out and, and do what's comfortable. But the more I learn, there's a point to them being easy runs, right? They're, I don't know the exact physiological nature of it, but maybe you can walk us through, like, why do we, why do we want to keep those easy runs actually easy? Yeah, this is this is like my whole raison d'etre. This is my whole like, this is why I started doing what I do. Because yes, you are correct. Most runners left to their own devices are going to run everything a little bit too hard. And I think they've done studies and they found that recreational runners tend to divide their running into like 50% moderate, 50% hard. I'm sure there are other, you know, kind of um, distributions, but the majority of your endurance training should come from an easy effort training zone. So I mentioned sub aerobic threshold training. We talk about your different intensity zones or physiological zones. You've probably heard of your lactate threshold. That's a higher, higher um, intensity, kind of a moderate high intensity level that lactate threshold. It's roughly the pace or effort you could hold for about an hour. So if you're a 10 K hour long runner, if you can run a 60 minute 10 K your 10 K pace and effort is approximately your lactate threshold. And the lactate threshold is a point at which lactate, which is a byproduct of when glycogen and glucose carbohydrate is burned in your body anaerobically, you produce byproducts. And some of those byproducts include hydrogen ions, which are acidifying and lactate, which is not a waste product, but in large quantities it can build up and spill over. And, um, and that's kind of a marker of a certain saturation point, right? So beyond our lactate threshold is typically a very, very high intensity. Why am I talking about lactate when, when we were questioning was about easy effort running? Cause you actually have two lactate thresholds. This is a fun, fun tidbit fact. Your first lactate threshold is also the top of your aerobic threshold. Your aerobic threshold is that threshold from which you go from burning majority fatty acids and doing most of your energy being produced aerobically to having an anaerobic contribution and also burning more carbohydrate. And this is can also be expressed as a ventilatory threshold. Your breathing rate changes. This can also be expressed as a heart rate zone, right? So people, if you're running in your easy effort zone, you should see very steady heart rate. It should be really easy to keep your heart rate in that range. If you are seeing lots of, you know, kind of if your heart rate looks like it's kind of just like on a walking uphill the whole time, that drift, 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 you probably are starting outside of your easy effort zone and your heart rate is having to increase um, its beats per minute as your energy demands increase and all those types of stuff. Why does this matter though? So easy effort running, sub aerobic threshold running is the foundation of your endurance training because that is what creates your endurance. That is what allows you to endure. There are a lot of physiological changes that come along with spending significant amounts of time in your um, subaerobic threshold zone, like improving your slow twitch muscle fiber fatigue resistance, right? All that means is that the muscles that work long can then work longer. It actually increases your mitochondrial density. Remember the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell? The more powerhouses you have, the more energy you can create. Energy makes you go forward. You want more of these. Um, angiogenesis, which is the creation of new blood vessels, happens. So you actually have more highways to more powerhouses, right? We're like creating infrastructure in our body. Um, and it also allows you to increase your training volume without overly accumulating fatigue because the principles of endurance training are based on cumulative fatigue, as in we run most days. Am I 100% recovered from yesterday's run before I go on today's run? No, of course not. But when we are so fatigued days and days and days in a row, eventually we dig ourselves into this hole where our body is being stressed so much repeatedly that it cannot keep up with the repair process. 
easy effort running, although it provides many of these benefits and of course is a stressor because running is stress. It's not nearly as stressful as if we were running in a higher intensity zone. And so it does allow us to increase our volume. Theme of this episode seems to be like you, you do kind of have to run quite a bit to achieve the goals you want to achieve. And the best way to increase your volume and also get all these benefits of endurance is to spend significant time in your easy effort zone. So like I mentioned before, you know, if you're a new runner, if you're base building, if you're building up to a new volume for the first time, straight up 95% of your training might be in an easy effort zone. You might do some strides, you might do some hill sprints, maybe you have a, a progression run here and there. The majority of your training is going to be in your easy effort zone. If you're a more experienced runner, if you have things like workouts, speed work, threshold workouts, goal pace workouts, long run workouts, the majority of your running is still going to be in your easy effort zone. We say, you know, oh, that 80-20 split, 80% easy, 20% hard. That's a good guideline. There are reasons why you would massage it one way or the other, but nobody is out there doing 80% hard, 20% easy training for an endurance event. And speaking of easy, how do we determine that? So I heard you say heart rate. Is that the best indicator? Would it be like taking, for example, a minute off your pace? Like, it seems like it could be a little subjective. Yeah, I say, uh, you know, kind of like, how do, how do we triangulate our easy effort zone, right? Because it is not a pace, it's an easy effort zone. Within that zone, which is a pretty big zone, you have a wide range of paces. And depending on the day, the humidity, which where I currently am is like, feels like I'm walking through a wet blanket. Um, depending on your fatigue level, your uh, nutritional status, you know, did you, did you, <laughs> have you not eaten today? Um, are you over caffeinated? Are you under fueled? Are you really tired from all the training you've been doing? Uh, where are you in your menstrual cycle? Like all these things can influence what your easy pace might be on any given day. So we do want to target an easy effort zone. I like to use heart rate as a guide. It's not your God. It is a guide because many runners are who have never spent time in their true easy effort zone have absolutely no idea how genuinely slow and easy it's supposed to be. And of course, everybody's heart rate zones are going to be based on their specific heart rate and ranges. I, you know, as a, as a, let's throw the spaghetti against the wall guide. I say most runners are going to be 150 beats per minute and below. You might be slightly different than that, but I've never met a runner who's in their easy zone in the 170s. So um, if you are struggling to keep your heart rate low, uh, there are many of the things you can do, including slowing down, slowing way down. Easy running should not be painful. If you find it painful to run that slowly, you probably have some strength deficits, maybe some form issues that I guarantee you are also present at faster paces and working with the sports PT might be helpful in clearing those up. Um, you can also use run walk. Run walk's a great strategy to stay in your easy effort zone. Um, you can also use things like your, I mentioned before that ventilatory rate, like your breathing patterns. In your easy effort zone, you should be fully conversational. Not like I can speak a sentence or two. It should be like not monologuing like I'm doing right now, but you could easily converse with a friend. You could call your best friend. You can call your mom. You can call your dad and talk to them without losing your breath, gasping for breath without any issues without your heart rate continuing to rise. Um, you can also, you can use pace ranges. Uh, this is a little bit different though, because, you know, kind of the, the general rule is your easy effort pace is a minute slower than your marathon pace. If you're a six hour marathoner, your easy effort paces are kind of your marathon paces, right? If you're a, a three hour marathoner, you should be running slower <laughs> than a minute slower than your marathon pace for your easy effort runs. Um, so that is kind of like, if nothing else, at least you know, maybe it's slower for most people. Um, you, there are also fancy things like, you know, you can get a power meter and do a functional power threshold test. There are different ways you can calculate your easy effort heart rate zones based on whichever heart rate model you prefer. But the, the key takeaway is that it should feel relaxed. It should feel conversational. You shouldn't feel like you're straining. You shouldn't feel like your effort is increasing. Um, and it should feel like it may not be like, it may not always feel carefree, but it shouldn't feel like it's dragging you down. And how much of our training should be easy runs? I'm thinking like the first run after your long run or maybe a speed workout to flesh things out. But what does that look like if someone for example, is running maybe five times a week, would there, would you mix up easy and then have some speed in there or would that defeat the purpose? Well, it depends in the easy run itself. Yeah. Like I guess if you're doing, um, on the words, 
Like you might do like a progression. Yeah. Either a progression or you might throw some speed. So if someone's doing a long run, you might try to hit Mm -hmm. a certain pace for a certain amount of miles then back off. If you're doing an easy run, it sounds like you wouldn't want to increase speed or, or do any of that work because we're working on base building and resisting fatigue. And it sounds like that would fatigue us. Well, the point easy effort running is in every single training week that you have, no matter what you're training for. So if you're, for example, if you're running five times a week for most runners, at least minimum three of those runs are going to be easy effort runs, probably four. Um, And you always want to have an easy effort warm up and cool down, even when you do have a hard day, a day of quality, a day of intensity. In the kind of dichotomous, polarized view of dividing your training into easy versus not easy, it really is as simple as that. If it's not easy, it's quote unquote hard. Is it, can, does moderate mean hard? Yeah, sure. It's basically anything above your easy effort zone can be hard. There are many different ways, like I said, to kind of um, massage your training intensity distribution, especially considering what you're training for and which phase of training that you're in and where you are in relation to your race day. But um, a lot of runners tend to like, when they learn about training intensity distribution and like specific percentages, they I've had runners like send me gra- like charts where they have calculated their mileage down to the 10th of the mile and been like, I'm running 81% hard. Um, uh, sorry, like um, 21% hard, 79% easy. Is that going to ruin my training? I'm like, this is, you're way overthinking it. This is a general guideline. And actually the original science behind this was based on training sessions right? So if you had X number of sessions, this many were hard, this many were easy. Can you have higher intensity work in an easy run? Yeah, probably. It just depends. There's my favorite phrase there. So for example, you know, if you are doing strides or hill sprints at the end of an easy run, that's still an easy run. The purpose of that day was still an easy effort day. You just happened to throw in some strides and hill spins or basically drills in my world. You happen to throw some very, very tiny sprinkling of higher intensity at the end to work some neuromotor skills um, and, and serve a small purpose. But let's say if you ran for an hour and did a total of a minute of, of, of strides, Like that does not make that a hard day. However, if you do take your easy effort run and turn it into a progression run, that day is no longer an easy day. If you're spending the majority or even a significant part of time outside of your easy effort zone, that's not an easy effort run. Are there reasons to include small bits of higher intensity in an easy effort run? Like you can do mid run surges or, um, absolutely. But you know, that's kind of, again, getting into that really more of that really specific training um, that a coach might assign to you. So for most people, you know, it's going to be really easy to just think of it as that when I'm on an easy run, my goal is to keep that easy. If I have something at the end of it, that's a different thing. And then if I have a day of quality, whether that is a tempo run, which I hate the word tempo because it's such a catch-all phrase, threshold workout, goal pace run. If you have a long run workout, which means a long run that contains specific sections of higher intensity, you know, the majority, keep the easy part of that run easy. And then you don't do the, do the hard parts, um, as prescribed. I will also say that an easy effort long run is a race specific workout. You do not need to include goal pace or goal effort miles in your long run or in every long run. If you do have quality days in your long runs, um, an easy effort long run is a race specific workout. Long runs, even when done in their easy efforts, like they mostly should be, are one of your harder days, even though they're in an easy zone, simply because of the duration that you're on your feet. So a lot of people think like, you know, get like I said, really in the weeds about classifying easy and hard and really getting nitty gritty. Like you don't have to. It's just most most things easy, some things not easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but that was that kind of leads into my question about long runs. So I feel like that's kind of what most of us think about when we do our training, like, okay, Saturday I have 10 miles then 12 and I'm going up to, you know, I guess it varies depending on your training plan, 22 miles, some go higher. What's the point of that? How are, why is that important? Aside from, you know, this easy run and base building, but, but mentally speaking, why is that long run important for our training? Yeah. So there are a couple of things too. I just want to address that. Um, your long run should really not take you longer than three hours. So you should not really be spending more than three hours on your feet on a long run, which means that unless, unless you're quite fast, 
you probably shouldn't be doing a 20, 22, or definitely longer than that long run. Um, you know, elite runners and, and very competitive runners might run 22 miles for a long run, but they're doing it in two hours and a half, two hours and 45 minutes, right? So for somebody who was running a 12 minute mile to run a 20 mile long run, that is going to be deleterious to them because the recovery time for them to recover from that multi, multi hour of a long run is going to be disadvantageous to their overall development. Um, and your risk of injury really starts to rise when you spend that much time on your feet and spend that much time on your feet in any single run. Generally, you want to keep your long run between a quarter and a third of your total weekly volume. Some plans may take you up to 40%. A huge error red flag I see in some training plans is when 50% or more of your weekly volume is in a long run. So if you're following a training plan, let's say for a marathon, and you're running 30 miles per week, and you've an 18 mile long run, that's not okay. <laughs> that is an imbalanced way of training. Either you should be running more during the week, or you should be running less in your long run. So I will say that physiologically and mentally, there are a lot of things that occur when you're on a long run. The physiological point at which a run becomes a long run is about 90 minutes. It has to do with glycogen depletion in our body. And of course, nutrition podcast, I'm sure you've talked about glycogen here before, but that glycogen depletion is really the goal of the long run because it's going to happen in your race. If you're spending more than, I mean, really more than 60 or 75 minutes, but definitely above 90 minutes in your race, you are going to have to deal with running on glycogen that is depleting and learning how to fuel your body with exogenous sources of fuel. And then also how, how your muscle fibers deal with running as glycogen is depleting as your muscle fibers become fatigued over those multi-hour events. And then of course, you know, um, the mental aspect of being out there for, you know, 90 minutes, two hours, two and a half hours, three hours, that is a huge part of the training, right? How do I just keep going? Just stay out here, just keep going. So there are a lot of reasons why we do the long run. Of course, depending on what you're training for, your long run won't be that long. You know, if you're training for a 10K, your long run might be 90 minutes, right? But if you're training for a marathon, you will be going up to three hours a couple times in your marathon training cycle. Um, even if you're not necessarily getting to a specific uh, distance when volume, because your body doesn't know distance. It only knows duration and effort. And it's the, like I've said before, the cumulative effects of your training. If all it took to train for a marathon was a single 20 mile long run, that's how we'd all be training. But it's not any one single run or even week of training. It is the entirety, the hundreds and hundreds of miles, the hundreds of hours that you're spending training for this one day that build up your ability to complete 13.1, 26.2 miles, even if you don't ever run that distance in training. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going back to, I'm hearing over and over the theme of this episode is the importance of that base and slowly working on that increasing from there. I mean, I'm used to thinking about long runs and numbers, but thinking about it in time makes so much sense. And the fact that, I mean, I guess even someone training for a five-hour marathon, you would still kind of cut them at that three-hour long mark long run mark. Yeah. And so kind of the going back to that cumulative fatigue thing is that, you know, you have to remember on race day, you should be tapered and rested and ready in training. Like we said, you're never recovered from your previous run before you start your next one, or, you know, you're not fully recovered. Why does this matter? Because carrying that additional fatigue simulates what it's like to race with fatigue, to run with fatigue in your legs. And, you know, for runners who are really concerned about, their ability to run 26 miles when they maybe they only ran 14 or 15 in training, right? Because that took them to the three hour mark. Maybe they ran 16, maybe they ran 17. Um, maybe they ran 18, maybe you did get to 20. But then you in the back of your mind, you're still thinking, okay, but then I still have to run six more miles, right? And so I've actually a couple of my athletes, you know, talking about the, the science behind the long run and all this kind of stuff. And none of my athletes go above 20 miles. Um, you know, and most don't even go that far in their longest long run. And I, you know, I've looked at them and said, because they've expressed anxiety about, you know, but will I be able to on race day? And I, I looked at them and said, is there any distance we could run in training that would convince you you could run 26 miles? And they said, well, 26 miles. And I said, okay, so it doesn't matter how far we go then. It doesn't matter how far we run in training because you will never could be convinced tech, you know, of course, and then I, we talk more and they, they are convinced and I build their confidence because what I do as a coach, but 
you know, if you think that a specific long run distance is the magic number, it's not, and you're never going to be satisfied. Um, that's being, because you haven't trusted the training, you've bought into the training yet. So there are ways, like I said, if you are a runner who is only getting to 15, 14, 15, 16 miles in your longest long run, there are ways you would kind of like biohack that fatigue and simulate the fatigue of, of a much longer run. And we typically do that by running the, I always have my runners run the day before a long run. Sometimes we do back-to-back longer runs. And so that would be running like like, you know, eight miles and 12 miles, right? So eight miles on a Saturday, 12 miles on a Sunday. You've run 20 miles over two days, right? So very similar training effect, much less stressful on the body. So there are different ways, like I said, to, to you know, to have that plan be appropriate for the runner. And this is, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions that runners have when they look at a marathon training plan. I think I have to have one that re- reaches 20 miles for my longest long run, when in fact, many of them shouldn't be running a plan like that. And so, no, breaking up your own long run into two parts is not the solution. You need to find a plan that is appropriately sized for your ability. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think you have to be a smart consumer. Much like nutrition, you could find a free nutrition plan online or a sub 1500 calorie meal plan, which don't even get me started on that. Same with running, right? You, there's free race plans everywhere. And I'm sure some of them are, many of them maybe are dangerous and maybe aren't made by running coaches or just this worked for me. So it'll work for you type mentality. Yeah. And there are, um, there are some, not every, I think I, I, I use this analogy in a different one, you know, training plans are like sushi. <laughs> some of them are legitimately dangerous and will hurt you. Some of them are fine. Like if you didn't know any better, sure. It scratches the itch like that. It probably won't hurt you. And you know, everything is probably going to turn out okay. And then some are like, oh, wow, this is what it's supposed to be like. Now I understand how good it's supposed to be, you know? And so, yes, there are some, there are some numbers on a spreadsheet plans, which, and people that I've, I've gotten some, instead of post about this recently, people send me some like homemade plans or plans that their like brother's cousin wrote for them. Cause he ran cross country middle school, which are like, you burn that plan and never, never, ever take advice from that person again. Um, there are some really commonly available plans that do, um, do follow that common, like 20 mile long run. I don't, for some runners, especially if you're on the faster side, you know, if you're, if you're training and you could easily or relatively easily complete 20 miles in three hours at your easy run pace. One of those free off the shelf plans will probably be a fine fit for you because you probably have a lot of natural talent and many types of training will probably be fine for you. Most people are not going to fall into that category though. And so, you know, that's when it's finding a plan that really is, like I said, appropriate for you. And I don't, I want to specifically call out any other plans, but I will, um, because I think this is really important. I've, I recently, so I, I'm launching a dopey challenge training group, um, for runners running the dopey challenge at Disney world, which is the 5k, 10k half and full marathon back to back. So in four days and having worked with runners, um, last year and just being familiar with the, the event, you know, I, I personally find the training plan that has provided to them for free is wholly inadequate and basically dangerous. Um, and it has them running twice a week during the week and then these massive, massive long runs on the weekend. And I'm like, in all good conscience, I cannot allow a runner to run for 45 minutes twice a week and then 18 miles on the weekend was going to take them five hours. And then what? Then they're supposed to run 46 miles over four days and not hurt themselves. So, you know, as much as we want to have the world with very little, you know, investment, um, we want to be able to do everything all the time. To train for these types of endurance events takes an investment of your time because you want to do it properly. So yes, there are, uh, there are some training plans out there that are, they're a fine fit for many people, but there are a bunch I see where I'm like, man, there is, there is such a better way to do this. Okay. Let's talk about adaptations. Cause I'm, I'm curious. So when I'm working with runners from a nutrition perspective, I'm like, here's how we know you're eating enough. You're not hungry at all hours of the day. You're not waking up hungry. Your meals are getting a mixture of macronutrients. You're not losing a ton of weight overnight or after a run, you're not losing a ton of weight from being dehydrated. Like those are the things we work on. 
So from a running training perspective, how do we know you're adapting? Is it muscle soreness? Is it you're able to complete without stopping? Like how do we how do we know it's working? Yeah, a lot of runners use pace. Like, am I getting faster as a marker of am I improving? And your pace is really the kind of the last thing that's going to change, even though it might be the most visible. Um, the other thing you keep in mind is that, as we said before, depending on the fatigue level you feel of the day and a myriad other conditions, your paces are going to fluctuate from day to day. Your easy ever paces, your workout paces, that's completely normal. Yeah, you're going to slow down in the summer. Everybody does. You have to because it's hot out. Um, some ways that runners can know if they are uh, running with an appropriate training load and or adapting to their training. So if you are running um, a, a maintenance volume, if you're base building at a static volume, yes, you can base build without increasing your volume. You can base build with increasing your volume. But let's say hypothetical runner, they are uh, running 25 miles per week. They've, they've worked, they were running 15 over about a four to six week period. They built up to be able to run 25 miles per week. And now they're just kind of going to run that for like a couple weeks and see how it goes. And so a marker of, am I handling this volume is, am I completing my runs? Like are my runs, of course, everyone, you know, some runs are going to be a challenge, but can I complete my schedule? Like without too many issues, do I need to take a whole bunch of unplanned rest days? Am I getting sore? You should not, after you've done something a couple times, you know, you should not be getting sore on a regular basis. You know, this is soreness is common when we start new activities or do things that we don't typically do. But if you are sore after most runs, that is a, I don't even want to say a red flag. That's like a black flag. That is like something is way off either in your training or in your recovery, which can encompass nutrition in your sleep as well. Um, are you sleeping well, right? You know, one of the things that happens when we train too hard or have an imbalanced um, uh, ratio of stress to, to recovery is that our cortisol gets artificially elevated and cortisol can interfere with our ability to sleep properly. Um, so if, are you sleeping well at night? It does a bunch of other things too, but are you sleeping well at night? Um, are you handling the training load? You know, do you feel good the rest of the day? you know, when you're running and on the rest of the day. Um, another thing that can happen is that even though your pace may not increase, your effort level and or heart rate may decrease at that same pace. As you That's a marker rate, of increase. Right? Exactly. As a marker of increased fitness. So you're thinking like, typically I run, let's say 10 minute per mile on this specific, on this specific run. And my heart rate is this and my effort is here. And then you're thinking over time, well, I ran that pace, but my heart rate was lower and my effort felt easier. That is increased fitness right there in a nutshell. Another marker of increased fitness is that if you are increasing volume, you're handling the increases in volume, right? You can, you, of course, you may feel some fatigue, but you can keep doing it. You're not taking all those unplanned rest days. You're not crashing and burning the middle of workouts. You're not bailing on long runs. You're not dreading your runs. That's a huge one I see with runners who are flirting on the edge of burnout. And this happens to a lot of people who run their easy days a little bit too hard, but they start to dread their runs. Like we don't always want to go in every run. Like I don't want to go in every single run that's on my schedule. That's okay. That's not, it's not realistic to, to feel that way, but you shouldn't dread going on your runs. You shouldn't be like, I really don't want to do this. That's, that's a sign that something isn't working. So, um, like I said, although we tend to want to look at pace as the marker of success, there are many other ways to understand, am I handling this? Am I improving at this? That are a lot, a lot more holistic than just the number on the paper. Absolutely. I think that's important for our type A runner demographics here. We're number focused and a lot of people for nutrition too. It's like, did I lose weight or not? What's the number on the scale? What about how do you feel? What about are you able to order food without stress and not think about food all the time? Are you able to enjoy the meal you're eating? So there's so many other things that come into perspective here. So I love that you talked about all of those things. So we've talked a little bit about base building, building up. We've talked about training cycles. Now, as we start to think about race day, we have the taper period and, and the taper crazies and a lot of runners start to feel anxious or doubt themselves. So what are you telling your clients during this period? And then again, why are we tapering? Why is it important? The taper is an ingrained part of the training process. We, let me, let me see if I can, I've used a couple different ways of describing us. What's the best way that I can do this? Um, 
it is like, all right, here's a good one. Let's say that you are um, varnishing a piece of furniture. We want it to have this beautiful, glossy finish. And it's going to take a whole bunch of layers of varnish to get there. Layers upon layers upon layers upon layers upon layers. Well, when we finish putting all of our layers on, it's going to look kind of like cloudy and like crap. During the taper periods, when we start polishing, 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 and letting our body recover so that our true fitness can shine through. And our true fitness is that beautiful, glossy finish. The taper is a necessary part of your training when you are training for peak performance. Depending on the coach and the terminology they use, the taper period might actually be called the sharpening period or the peaking period. And I think when we call it, I mean, I call it a taper because that's what I was taught and that's how a lot of people describe it. But I think calling it a taper, because as we progressively decrease your training load in the weeks before your race, typically two weeks, sometimes three, that that kind of like um, that terminology tapering can freak a lot of people out when I call it, this is your sharpening period. This is your peaking period during your taper is when you strip away all that accumulated fatigue. Your body finally has a chance to recover from the months of training you've put it through without, without allowing it to fully recover because that was the point. And you can finally consolidate all of those fitness gains that you've made so that on race day, you are the strongest and most ready and the least, the least tired you have been this entire period of time. Tapering works. There's so many studies about this, um, ranging from like a one to 6% increase in performance on a race day. 6% in a marathon is huge. That is minutes difference, right? Um, for some people, tapering is, you know, we're talking about 15, 20 minutes faster when they're tapered compared to if they'd just gone and run, uh, when they were super fatigued in the peak of their training cycle. Um, the biggest part of the, of the taper period, I, the, I think the thing most people struggle with is doing less. And I understand this not to say that, oh, you should just get used to running less. We are creatures of habit. We are humans. We are hugely routine-based. And if you go from running four, five, six days a week to running four or five, you know, six days a week, but like less, your body doesn't, your brain don't necessarily like that. Um, it's, you need to, that's supposed to happen, but it's okay to feel a little bit squirrely. It's okay to feel a little bit achy and painy. That is your body addressing areas that need to be repaired. That is normal. If you have minor little tweaks and things pop up in your taper period, don't freak out. That is normal. The taper period, the most important thing you can do during your taper is actually taper, not do more than supposed to. you're supposed to, get enough sleep, and then focus on your nutrition and hydration heading into race day. You have to remember that if you don't taper properly, the work that you've done up until now, like you've just thrown away your investment, right? You've done how many months of training? And if you don't taper properly, I'm not saying it does all the fitness you put in didn't count, but you are actively sabotaging yourself if you don't taper properly. I know for myself, it was, I mean, as we talked about, marathon training takes a lot of time. So that's you know, you get a little bit of that time back. You can put your feet up and watch some shows, read a book, spend more time foam rolling or doing those mobility things that not all of us runners are able to keep up on during a training cycle. But I think I love your your idea of just changing the wording because I think if we reframe it a little bit, it can be a, a little more empowering. And then the nutrition, like you said, is so huge. And as we head into a few days before the race, we'll be talking about carb loading. And we have a whole episode on that that we can direct you to. But I think understanding from a physiological perspective why we do the taper, like you said, we've built up all of this fatigue and it gives our body a chance to sort of catch up. One of the big mistakes that people make in their taper is they, um, they don't, let me say, they, they make too many changes. <laughs> so like you said, you know, you think, oh, I'm my taper. I have time to do more now. It's like, well, you have time to do more recovery. You have time to do more rest. You have time to do more sleep. Um, I've had people say, oh, good. In my taper, I can start doing my core workouts. It's like, no, if you were not doing them until now during your taper, it's not the time to start any sort of new strength training modality. <laughs> you need to wait until you're done with your race. Um, the other thing about tapering is that if you have 
intensity in your training plan. Like I said, not everybody and every runner will have workouts, but almost every runner should have at least strides and maybe some hill sprints once or twice a week, even in a just finish or a, a beginner style plan. Um, you don't drop that during your taper. You do less overall, but you just do the same proportion of less. So especially if you have a multi-week taper, you will still be doing scaled down versions of those quality days. You will still be including some fast running if your training plan included faster running in your taper. And that's really to help um, your neuromuscular system stay sharp and to prepare your body for the fact that you are going to have to run fast on race day. So for people who are, you know, kind of winging it with their own training plan, which I would never, ever recommend. um, And they, you know, like, how should I write my taper? It's just a scaled down version of the training that you've done before. And you do want to dramatically drop that volume, you know, in race week, we're looking at anywhere from a a 60 to 80% reduction of your peak week volume, right? So if you, for, let's say for my, my math brain's sake, if you were running 80 miles or a hundred miles a week in, um, in your peak week, you know, you're running the equivalent of 20 to 30 miles, you know, in your, in the week of your race, right? Which is a massive reduction. You don't want to stop running. You just want to run less. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that for us. And We really appreciate you going through all of this. I know we scanned over this quickly for the sake of the listeners, and I want to direct you to Elizabeth's account and her Instagram. She has very in-depth podcast episodes that probably cover all of these topics in more depth. So if, if you're someone who likes to know more of the research, more of the science, definitely give those a listen. But since this is a fueling podcast, I wanted to ask, how are you fueling? We have lots of, we've talked about lots of the different fuels out there, so what is your choice of fuel right now as you're fueling for Chicago in the hot summer months? What works for you? Yeah. So my fuel, considering that Chicago is a, an American-based marathon major and large American marathons, um, New York, Chicago, LA, uh, Boston, typically don't allow hydration packs for security reasons. Um, so, you know, this makes it, again, a bit of a logistical challenge of how do I fuel myself properly on race day with really aiming for that, for me, 75 grams of carbohydrate per hour in the race. Marathon recommendations we know are minimum 60, 90 if you can. Uh, elite runners I know are playing with above 90 grams per hour, which is just so much fueling, but it's tough to get all of that into a gel. Uh, Cause you just feel like you're eating all the time. Um, but considering the circumstances I'll be running and I am using a gel based strategy, I call it my just add water strategy. And I did develop this with my dietitian, Kirsten screen. And so it is goo roctane gel. Um, I like the goo roctane, not because of the amino acids. I like it because it has more sodium <laughs> and I am a salty sweater. So with, and without caffeine, you don't, I don't, you don't need a whole absolute crap ton of caffeine in races, but I'm going to be taking a gel um, every 20 minutes, uh, you know, not every flavor has the same carb count. So making sure I'm choosing flavors that have, you know, about 25 grams of carbs. Um, if this were a race where I would be able to carry liquid fuel and like, you know, pre-mixed liquid fuel, I'd probably doing a gel and liquid fuel mix, but I'm just gelling it up. Like I finish a long run and I just like, it feels like when I empty my hydration vest, cause I still train with that in the summer. I'm just like, I have like handfuls of empty goo wrappers. <laughs> It takes so many gels to, to fuel a multi-hour long run. But um, from coming from somebody who I used to train and race 100% fasted, I never, ever thought that I would be able to fuel or fuel this much in training. And it has just, you can, I absolutely, you, you just have to train your body to do it. Just like we train our bodies to do these things when we run. Um, it's just made an unbelievable difference in my performance and recovery. So I'm, I am pro fuel all the way. Yes. Uh, we love to hear that. We didn't tell Elizabeth to say any of that. We're actually having Kirsten on the podcast in a few weeks, which will be fun. Um, so it sounds like you already, this works for you. You've already kind of investigated. So you're just sticking with the plan and you're three months out. So that's great. You already know. Yeah. it's. I mean, of course there's trial and error, right? If But if you're training for a marathon, if you've started your marathon training, you should have started your fueling training as well. You don't need to Obviously, I'm preaching to the choir here. You don't need to triple your fuel consumption, you know, overnight. It's probably going to end badly if you do need to give yourself time to adjust. But you know, really, this was a process for me where I started at, you know, 30 grams. I was I started way back when I started actually feeling I would take a gel, 
every, I think it was like every hour, right? Like just start, start where you are. And then it was like every 45 minutes and I would start my first gel would be 45 minutes. And then it was every 30 minutes. And then I've worked up to a place where I would take one every 30 minutes. And now I'm like 20 minutes. I'm like, it, it kind of does feel like all you do is eat, mm-hmm. but like, that's the price we pay, right? I'll, I'll take as many gels as I need to. If I, I will cross the finish line carrying a half empty gel. That means I'm going to reach my goal. Yeah. Yeah. Great perspective. And that's great. 75 grams an hour is ideal. You're within that range. And for our runners who don't think that's possible, you heard it here, train your gut. It is, it is possible. So we're going to do a little bit of a rapid fire, if that's okay with you, as we, as we round out the episode, and then we'll let you tell us where followers can find you. So what is your current favorite show? My current favorite show. Um, I am watching physical on Apple TV and The Bear on Hulu. Who is your favorite running idol? Someone you like? Oh, Kira D'Amato. Kira D'Amato. I mean, yeah. how can you I mean... not say that right now? <laughs> right? <laughs> I was actually listening to her on Allie on the Runs podcast earlier today. Your favorite place to travel to? London. Have you been there a lot? Yeah. I would move there if I could. Like, we, I've won that billion dollar jackpot. You'll you'll see me broadcasting from London. <laughs> that's where we'll find you. <laughs> Favorite dessert? Mm, that's a tough one. My brain is saying tiramisu. I don't know why. I never order tiramisu, but that's probably what my brain is saying right now. <laughs> First thing that comes to mind. A bucket list race for you. Oh, this is uh, London. <laughs> Okay. Well, you can, that's a world marathon major, right? It is. Yeah. So you can just kind of, once you cross Chicago off, start crossing them off slowly. And what is your pre-run snack of choice or meal of choice? (laughs) So, um, so my, my go-to breakfast is oatmeal. So when I have time, I like to make oatmeal and and put some things in it. If I am crunched for time, my pre-run snack is a gel. (laughs) There you have it. Super simple. Are you a morning runner? I like to be a morning runner. Um, sometimes I don't get, get out the door until much later in the day, uh, just because of scheduling stuff. So it, I used to, I used to struggle with running in the afternoon because I wasn't fueling properly. So I always felt like absolute garbage when I ran. So I, I do a lot better now running any time of day because I can fuel and I'm fueling more effectively now. Um, I still prefer to run in the morning and just like get it done and get it over with. I can be like, Oh, I still have to run today. (laughs) How hot is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I, when I'm flexible with my runs, it's nice to have that flexibility, but (laughs) there's a lot more factors I have to check in on. Okay. And last question that I just thought of, what are your dog's names? My dog's names are Beatrice, Queen Bee. She's my sassy old lady. Uh, And then Liam, my little woodle man, he's very emotionally needy. And then Reese, um, the most pretentious name I think I've ever seen for a dog. Not Reese like Reese's Cup, Reese like the Welsh spelling, because why not? Yeah, they're my babies. Oh, three dogs. Wow. Yeah, a lot of dogs. <laughs> well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for sharing your time and knowledge with us today. Can you tell people, I know you're doing some group running training programs. Can you talk a little bit about that and let our followers know where to find you for more information? Yeah. Thank you for having me. I love coming and talking about running. The reason I do this is because I get to talk about running all day. Um, And I just, you know, I I like to make, help runners make better, empower them to make better decisions about their own training, whether or not you have a coach knowing more about the sport and doing it properly is just going to make you a more effective, more efficient runner. Um, So thank you. Um, you can find me mostly on Instagram at Running Explained. I also have a website and a podcast, the Running Explained podcast. For coaching offerings, yes, we do offer group coaching. Currently, the group coaching um, format is that they are like um, little cohorts that are race specific and time specific. So we are currently, um, these groups are closed and they're currently going. We have an early full marathon, an early half marathon, the early fall. Uh, full and half marathon groups. We are doing a New York City specific group that is closed and going very well. Currently open for registration is the late fall half marathon groups. So if you're running a half marathon between uh, in November and through the middle of December, 
this group is for you. We have a, a one spot left in the late fall full marathon group. So if you're running anything from mid-November through the middle of December, this is for you. Um, and then, of course, like I said, that Dopey Challenge training group. So um, this has been the first year that I've offered group training, and it's going really, really well. Of course, as a coach and doing what I do, I want to make sure that I'm always offering the best options to the most amount of people. So how I'm, I am considering making changes to how group training is offered going forward, but group training options will always be available. We also do have one-on-one coaching options. There's a wait list right now, but that does exist. And of course, if you do just purchase a training plan, you get access into the private Facebook group where you get, you know, me and my other coaches always hanging out, kind of answering questions and the support of all the other group members as well. Awesome. It's nice to hear there's a lot more options for group training. I know nutrition, we're doing a lot of group nutrition coaching too, which you can reach more people that way. And sometimes people like the camaraderie. So if you're someone who's looking for that, keep Elizabeth on your radar and definitely go check out our podcast. It is full of helpful episodes all around your training and what the science says. So again, thanks for coming on and we'll chat with you soon. Thank you for having me. It was great being here. That wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review so others can find it more easily. You can also stay in touch with us by joining our Facebook group, Nutrition for Runners. If you have any requests for future episode topics and more, email us at nailyournutritioncourse1 at gmail.com. Happy fueling! Happy fueling!